Is there someone in your life you wish wasn't? Maybe a group of people, or maybe you're just plain bored. I have a solution. How about ticking up hunting? Sounds like the perfect time for episode 25 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your I Don't Do Requests host, Howard Castor. For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment. I'm especially looking for more reviews on iTunes, and I'd love to know what you think. Today, my guest is writer and film critic, influencer, and book reviewer Hermione Flavia. Hermione has chosen the perhaps too relevant Arnold Schwarzenegger dystopian action film, The Running Man, and I chose the pre-code adventure classic, The Most Dangerous Game. Both films about men hunting men for sport. To begin, Hermione, tell us something about yourself. I've watched movies my whole life, and I'm just obsessed with characters and stories. Most of what I do kind of comes down to that. I love talking about movies, working on movies. Yeah, I love books and things as well. That's my jam. I love people's stories about their own lives as well. It's all about stories. (laughs) Well, you've come to the right place. With that, let's get to your selection, The Running Man. First, some information about the film. The Running Man was released in 1987. It's directed by, of all people, Paul Michael Glaser, written by Stephen E. D'Souza, loosely based on the 1982 book of the same name, written by Stephen King, using the name Richard Bachman. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Conchita Alonso, Yafit Koto, Richard Dawson, Marvin J. McIntyre, Mick Fleetwood, Professor Toru Tanaka, Gus Rinwith, Jesse Ventura, Jim Brown, Erlen Van Lith de Jude, I'm sure I got that one wrong, and Dweezil Zappa. The basic premise revolves around a future, the year 2025, where the economy has collapsed and the U.S. has turned into a fascist state. The people distract themselves by watching a violent game show called The Running Man, in which a man is sent into a subsection of the city to be hunted down and killed by contestants called stalkers. When a state security officer refuses to open fire on innocent people during a food riot, he is framed for opening fire on the crowd and sent to prison. When he escapes, he is caught and forced to be a participant in the popular game show. Why did you choose this film? I've seen this movie years ago when I was a kid with my brother, and I remembered it being kind of interesting, but mostly a classic 80s action silliness. I just thought that would be really fun because it is so pop culture. That would be a fun one. And it's always fun to me when I want to rewatch this movie and then somebody else is watching it and you get to talk to them about it. my thought behind it but actually it kind of surprised me a little bit great well what did you think about it when you first saw it i was quite young so the things that stood out to me were the colors and there's a lot of movement so it's kind of like an exciting film that's what i remember of it and then the (laughs) the really larger than life bad guys that i think they call them stalkers is that right right so the stalkers in this movie, they're sort of like wrestlers, I guess, in that they have a theme and a persona and they're very performative. They're sort of like wrestlers who are already on steroids, on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. It kind of made me laugh. Oh my gosh, there are a couple of things in this. It being set in 2025, I was like, oh gosh, I picked a film that was maybe a little bit too spot on for something. I could really <laughs> see a couple of things where I could be like, oh, that's what's happening now. Yeah. So what did you think upon seeing it again? You know, I actually really liked it. I mean, it did make me laugh a couple of times. There's definitely like some really great 80s era cheesy one-liners, which is something that I love. The way it really skewers 
TV watching, the way the media does things. It's very much like a satire on social things and people's obsession with violence. Yeah, I was, wow, this is actually really well shot, funny, but it's also a little bit like, oh my gosh, food riot. Do you know what I mean? There's a couple of things where I was, wow, this is actually a much more intelligent film than I remember. Yes. I first saw it, as they often say on the show, when it first came out. (laughs) (laughs) You called it silly, which is right. But the term that is generally used is it's kind of cheesy. That's actually not necessarily a negative word because that's what made it fun. There are a lot of cheesy sci-fi movies in the 1980s and 70s and even 90s. And this is only one of them. Some of them were great, but some of them were like this one. They were just kind of cheesy and kind of fun. You went to them for that reason. But like you, when I saw it again now, (laughs) I found it a little more disturbing. Yeah. I didn't quite find it always as funny or even quite as cheesy, though it hopefully will never lose that aspect of it because that's one of the reasons to see it and one of the reasons why it's fun. Yeah. But in this time where the economy once again is bad and was bad before Obama and has now become bad again, where more and more it feels like the police are turning the country into a fascist state Mm -hmm. and where there is just an even more incredible rise of reality TV show. In comparison to 1980s, you'd almost think 1980s was an Eden Mm. when it came to reality shows because there weren't nearly as many as there are now. You're right. It just seems a little too relevant, even more so than when it was first made. There's also the Adidas emblem logo everywhere. Oh my gosh, with the rise of influences and things like that, there's brand names are even bigger than they were then. And there's fake news element. Agents are in charge of everything. Yeah. As the Richard Dawson character said once when he was calling the president, uh, forget about getting the president, give me the president's agent. (laughs) It just seemed incredibly and disturbingly relevant. Well, I didn't mean to pick a relevant film. (laughs) No, I think that makes it a really good choice. I think you made a better choice perhaps than you realize. I just can't take credit for it being that, that choice. I just thought, I want to watch this movie. So yeah, that's also a very good reason for choosing it as well. Yeah. What are some of your favorite scenes? What are some of your favorite parts? I feel like basically any time Arnie is on screen, because he's just slightly wooden throughout this movie, fits this film so well. He hasn't quite lost that woodenness yet, because it's only 1987. Anytime he has a one-liner, I'm <laughs> know it just makes me laugh but there's a bit with a pen where he has to sign something just before going on just he leans on a guy's back to sign the paper and so he's signing it and then he just stabs him in the back with the pen (laughs) it's just so of its time to me that kind of random violence well that's one of those fun cheesy scenes instead of a reverend or preacher walking him to his death it's his court-appointed agent yes instead of reading the bible reads him the contract and then he says when Schwarzenegger has a hard time signing the paper, he says, just use my back. And yes, you're right. After he signs it, he just stabs him in the back with the pen through the paper. When I saw that when I was a kid, that for some reason blew my mind. <laughs> I yeah. was like, oh my God, he just did that. But you think any of the scenes, the stalkers come out and they're introduced and you're like, why is this guy? There's an electric guy. His Dynamo, big thing is he's got lights on him and he basically like tasers or he can electric shock people. And he just looks like a massive baby. He's grotesque, but in a really fun, cheesy way. I really like all of the... He was the opera singer. 
That's right. Um, and he was an opera singer in real life. So. And like just integrates that into this violent character. I think that's really cool. It really adds a fun element to the film, all those personas of these people. I take what you say about these one-liners because Schwarzenegger is known for that. If you're going to do a Schwarzenegger film, at least from this period, you have to give him one-liners. Absolutely. And some of them become very famous Terminator, it's I'll Be Back, but he also says, I'll be back in this one. Mm -hmm. Most of his films have one line that people remember more than others. But in this one, he has a lot of them. They just give him a lot of lines that I'm sure were written just for him. The one I included at the beginning was, I don't do requests. (laughs) Yep. I think the juxtaposition of him and his, you know, very serious face, we kind of know his character like a good guy against the show's presenter who's so fake and is sort of nice to people's face. And then that's a really good dynamic as well. This really smooth talking guy who's actually really horrible. And then the guy that's a bit more, I mean, he's got those really good one liners, but he's not really like a super eloquent, suave guy. He's more like a big bulky guy. Originally, Christopher Reeve was attached to play the part. I can't exactly remember why he bowed out or they didn't go through with it. And then it got to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I suppose we should be honest, Arnold Schwarzenegger is no Laurence Olivier. He's not a particular good actor. Of course, you don't go to see a Schwarzenegger film because you're going to say, oh, we've got to see Schwarzenegger. He's like this incredible actor. Yes. You go to see a Schwarzenegger film because of his over-the-top personality. The fact that he never takes himself very seriously in these movies. He's always willing to laugh at himself or make light of himself because he chooses films often very, very well. It doesn't necessarily require him to do any great acting. Of course, his best performances are in Terminator and Terminator 2 because he's not supposed to act at all. Yeah, very smart on his part. To, shows a lot of self-knowledge, I guess. He was always very smart about that. No matter yeah. what else you can say about him as an actor, he's incredibly intelligent and he's an incredibly instinctive and good businessman, even when it comes mm-hmm. to making movies. Yeah, I'd 100% agree with that. For me, there are a few things that stand out. One is when Richard Dawson is talking to a lady in the crowd and they periodically ask someone in the crowd to predict who's going to make the next kill. And usually it's the stalker, but now Schwarzenegger has been Richards has taken out two already, which has never apparently been done. The way it's written, no stalker has ever been killed at all. She says, well, I think the next kill is going to be by Ben Richards. And Richard Dawson says, you can't choose Ben Richards. She says, I can choose anybody I want. And Ben (laughs) Richards says, one mother effort. I feel like that's a good moment. It's like the tide's turning. Right. And you can see that in Richard Dawson's eyes. I think Richard Dawson gives an incredible performance here. Mm -hmm. And it's often very, very subtle. He's big and bombastic at times. At other times, he's this slimy celebrity who is almost sociopathic in how he treats other people. And he's so self-loathing. You just get this sweat of self-loathing pouring out of him. But you can start seeing it in his eyes when he starts thinking, this isn't going well. Yes. This isn't going the way it's supposed to go. And I'm not sure it's going to turn out the way I want. You can just see the panic in his eyes. But he commands the screen. Apparently, people say he really wasn't that much different in real life. (laughs) And, of course, what also added to it, he he was the long-running host of the game show The Family Feud. Oh, was he? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, the very first host. 
cool. And he treats the crowd in this movie exactly the same way he treated the people on Family Feud. Oh, so there's like an added layer there. That's cool. Yes. I, I never knew that. Well, at the time, most people in the audience would because that's yeah. what it happened. Today, there have been so many hosts of the Family Feud. Most people may never remember they ever did host it. Fascinating. I also think the crowd scenes in the game show room in the audience mm-hmm. are very well directed, very well edited, very well shot. I mean, these yeah. people are really getting into it. <laughs> and I think that sometimes the costuming in those scenes is really fun, too. There's like old ladies screaming for death. Right. <laughs> Wonderful. Very human, ordinary people in right. the audience, which I think is really nice. And it would be very much mirror an audience that would be in The Price is Right yeah. or the one behind door number one, number two or number three. You would see these kinds of crowds because they'd be riled up by people who would say, yeah, let's get the energy up, let's cheer, let's shout. And it's also interesting to note that it's a very integrated crowd. Mm. Actually, much more integrated than you might see in game show audiences Yes. at the time. In fact, the whole movie is much more integrated and much more diverse than you might see in movies at the time, which yeah, I wouldn't have noticed. Really, yeah, now that I you say that, that's that. a really valid point. But I do agree that it is cheesy fun. It's very much of its time. You mentioned some of this, but what did you think overall of the technical aspects of it? I was kind of surprised by how well it was shot. There's some really choreographed camera work and there's dances and things as well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is actually really nice because <laughs> I love all of the costumes, big earrings and the shoulder pads, big hair and lots of metallic kind of things. And that's kind of enough, but it is really well shot. It shoots for tension and excitement very well. Yes, it's in many ways very much of its time. The camera work is a bit raggedy. That was a very popular at the time, the influence of the French New Wave that was still hanging on. The design is very much 1980s. And you talk about the hairstyles and the costumes. This is perhaps one of the worst couple of decades <laughs> for fashion. Oh, my God. It's probably the worst decades for men's fashions and not much better for women's. You mentioned those big shoulder pads, which if you watch Dynasty. Yeah. Yeah, the Joan Crawford shoulder pads had come back in with force and the big hair, a way of giving women strength and power, more dominance. and Power suit era. Right. Women were just triangles. <laughs> Pencils-shaped skirts were back in. Men had these wide lapels, Mm. flare pants. They don't go much in for plaids in this movie, but plaids were huge at the time. And sometimes I watch old TV shows like the Bob Newhart show and think, oh my God, I used to dress like that. I feel like yes. the is very expressive. And if you wanted to wear bright goldenrod yellow, like your entire suit was that color. I'm not going to say it's pretty or attractive, but I do think there was a sense of energy and bombasticness, playfulness to the way people were a little bit. That's a very insightful statement about fashion <laughs> at the time, because I think you're right. There's the time of the peacock for the men and the return to a men's approach to fashion for women that was in many ways emblematic of the period. Yeah, I do remember my mom having a lot of shoulder pads and ones that you could take out and put in other things that had like little Velcro strips on them. And it is sort of ironic because at this time in movies, women often weren't treated very well. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting because not only does it have a very strong character in the female lead with Maria Conchita Alonso, 
mm-hmm. who does her own bit of fighting and is integral to the plot. The plot doesn't work in many ways without her being in it, though at the same time, she does play a traditional women's role of the lady in distress. But at the same time, she carries her own weight. But she's also Hispanic. Yeah, it's kind of different, isn't it? And both are very rare at the time. I love her in this movie. I think I've seen her in other things too, but I just couldn't quite place what I've seen her in. But I think she's really good. And it has a very interesting supporting cast, all from the world of sports or WWE, <laughs> as well as someone from Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mick, and Dweezil Zappa, the son of Frank Zappa. It's like, who can we get in the sporting roles that will make this movie even more cheesy than it is? Yeah, it's really playing up that play on pop culture and the negative aspects of that, like fakeness, ruthlessness. I think it's so much more interesting than I expected this film to be. What did you think of Richard Dawson? I think he's good. I think he's like a really good choice. I feel like sometimes with actors... It's almost like you don't notice them. Sometimes that's like a sign of a really good performance. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I didn't notice him, but I'm, for example, in this movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays himself, right? As he always does. Yeah. And when somebody disappears into the film and feels like they're pushing the story forward or the plot forward and things like that, like I feel like that's a really good thing. It's a sign mm-hmm. of an actor that really fits and is serving the film rather than serving themselves. So that's kind of how I felt about that. A few of the actors were kind of like that. I do think Richard Dawson is in many ways the saving grace of the movie. It, it's like the perfect role with the perfect actor. Yes. And absolutely. he just steals the whole thing. <laughs> uh, what did you think of the directing? Paul Michael Glazer, who was Starsky in Starsky and Hutch, was replaced the original director. Oh, really? Who, I didn't in, know that. Yeah, in pre-production, the original director was taking the movie in a direction, I don't know what the direction was, but it was taking the movie in a direction that was different from what the producer wanted. So they got rid of him and brought in Paul Michael Glazer, who I think the producer knew from directing on TV. Oh, okay. So he has a TV background. Both as an actor, he did very few movies. Most of his direction oh. is totally on because I think this movie is very glossy, the style of it, and it's obviously has like a pretty good budget and all that kind of thing. But it definitely has a TV feel to it to me, which is right. intentional, obviously. I'm um, not sure it was totally intentional. It works there. <laughs> because he came on almost at the last minute. And Schwarzenegger really didn't like Glazer or his directing. Really? But Glazer's problem was is he didn't have a lot of prep time. Schwarzenegger said he directed it like it was a TV show. Well, uh-huh. yeah, there wasn't a lot of prep time. There wasn't a lot of pre-production where Glazer could do anything other than that. And since he was a director for TV, yes, it does look like an extended TV show. And it's probably the weakest part of the movie. I kind of like that. I would say that's kind of a strength of this movie. Gives it like something a little different. Certainly. I think you have a point there. It's cheesy like a TV series is cheesy. Yeah. So I think that certainly adds that to it. But at the same time, there isn't a lot of subtlety. (laughs) and There's not a lot of artistry to it. I'm not sure, though, do we really want a lot of artistry to it? And if there was artistry, would that change it? If you didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger in it and you went in a less cheesy direction, it could have been a very different film um, and quite an interesting one. What would have happened if Christopher Reeve had actually been the one who was ultimately cast? So different. I can see that, though. As is not unusual, Stephen King intensely disliked the movie. (laughs) Doesn't he always? Uh, Uh, One reason is it takes a lot of liberties with the original story. And the original story is about a TV show, yes, where people hunt people. And if you stay alive to the very end, and it goes on for a long time. I think the hunt is a few years. Oh, wow. 
Well, that's different. But it's a much, much longer period of time. And you can go anywhere in the world. You're not within a certain location. But every day I think you stay alive, you or your estate gets $1,000. Every time you kill a police officer or a security officer, that adds another $500 to the pot. Mm -hmm. And the central character is a man whose son is desperately sick and in need of an operation, and he doesn't have the money. No one ever survives these games. The person always ends up losing. But his reason for doing it is just to make enough money so that his family can provide for his son's operation. And then because it takes place over a longer period of time, there are all sorts of different little plot twists. It's like he goes into hiding for a long period of time. So have you read this? No, I haven't. Full disclosure, this is a summary. Oh, no, you're just describing it really well. I was going to ask you a bunch of questions, and I'm like, I'm curious about it now. I'm tempted to read it, even though it's not going to be much like the movie. I feel like Stephen King is kind of an interesting person. Just the way you were describing that, it sounds a little bit like, I know he really struggled financially as a teacher in his younger days before his writing took off. Your perspective on how life works and what's possible for you and like a get-rich-quick scheme that may end in your own death. That makes sense to me from that perspective of not having any money, living hand-to-mouth, you know, not having affordable health care when his mother was sick. It just kind of clicked with me, that right. kind of despair. And I can see all that yeah. going into that story. And that obviously is not... <laughs> In the movie at all. No, but I do have to say that, though I like in the story that it's about someone just trying to make enough money to save their son's life, I can't imagine the movie working if it took place over a longer period of time. There's not much tension there. Right. So I think that was a great decision to make in adapting mm-hmm. it to a movie and really emphasizing the reality show aspect. Yeah, I totally agree. It. Are you a big fan of Stephen King? Uh, not like a massive fan. Like I've read a bunch of his stuff. I think he's kind of fun. If it's a Stephen King book, you're like, well, we'll be here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's always long. I think Stephen King's kind of cheesy. I'll put that out there. Not all the time. I don't think Carrie's particularly cheesy, for example, but Tommy Knockers. I remember reading that recently and I was like, there's a lot of description in this book. <laughs> and it's, there's a lot of cheesy stuff as well. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, I think it all depends. Fun. For some things, you not only want something to be cheesy, it's why you're reading it. For other yeah. things, cheesiness isn't always the best approach. Yeah, I agree. There are times when I want to watch cheesy. I watch a lot of films. I watch a lot of art films, indie films, foreign films. And sometimes I'm going, gotta watch something cheesy. Can't watch something that's profound and original and unique. And one of the best channels for this is Amazon Prime, because they will have some of the cheesiest movies. ever made sometimes i want roger corman sometimes i don't want igmar bergman sometimes it makes you appreciate one or the other more do you watch a lot of reality shows no i don't really watch tv at all to be honest i'll pick specific series and binge watch the whole thing but Mm -hmm. i'm more like you now tend to focus on series i don't watch any reality shows and i very rarely have. The most I ever did was when MTV started the real world, mm-hmm. back possibly before you were born. <laughs> I watched the first few seasons because it was different and interesting. But I never got into reality shows. I never liked them. And I talked about this once on an earlier 
episode where we talked about the movie Series 7, The Contenders, Mm -hmm. which I'll talk about some at the very end when we get into recommendations. But I said that the reason why I don't watch reality shows is because I think they're misnamed. They're not reality. They're fake. They're They're manipulated. And manipulated and everything. Yeah, it's definitely a misnomer. So you have something like Game of Thrones, which is not reality. But there's a lot more truth in Game of Thrones than there is uh, America's Got Talent or The Bachelor. I was watching a show from England, 8 Out of 10 Cats, and where they predict what people were talking about most during the week. Mm-hmm. And often one of these shows comes up, and I think it was this time Britain's Got Talent. And someone says he doesn't understand why they use names anymore. He doesn't understand why they don't say, oh, uh, it's the kid that lives on the street. Oh, mm-hmm. it's the woman who recently divorced and is living on her own now. Reduced to an archetype. Right, instead yeah. of based on their talent. With that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $27 million to make. It made $38.1 million in the U.S. I don't know how much it made outside the U.S. I think it was a success. I don't think it was considered much of a flop. $38 million isn't really very much, but that's only in the U.S. So worldwide, it probably made quite a bit more. Janet Jackson wrote the music for the pre-game show, and Paula Abdul did the choreography. This was Erlen Van Lift's and Richard Dawson's final movie. And Richard Dawson only agreed to do the part if there was going to be no profanity. And as an extra bit of trivia, two of the actors in the movie went on to become governors. Jesse Ventura went on to become the governor of Minnesota, and Arnold Schwarzenegger went on to become the governor of California. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is The Most Dangerous Game. The Most Dangerous Game was released in 1932. It was directed by Irvin Fischel and Ernest B. Schroedsack, and was written by James Ashmore Creelman, based on a short story by Richard Connell, published in 1924 in Collier's Magazine. It has a music score by the legendary Max Steiner, and it was produced by Ernest B. Schroedsack and Miriam C. Cooper, who also did King Kong. It stars Joel McRae, Faye Ray, Leslie Banks, Robert Armstrong, Noble Johnson, and William B. Davidson. The drama revolves around a big game hunter returning home on a yacht. When the ship sinks after hitting some shoals, he makes it to the shore of an island where a mysterious Russian who has fled the revolution and is also a big game hunter lives in a huge mansion. There also are survivors of a different ship. It soon becomes clear that the host is tired of hunting animals and has graduated to a different sport purposely causing ships to sink to provide him with a different kind of gang. So what did you think of the pairing of the two films? You know, I think it's pretty good. They're like people hunting people. Pretty good (laughs) matchup. (laughs) They're quite different. (laughs) The fashion's a lot better in the second one. (laughs) (laughs) When did you first see the film? For this podcast. I remember hearing about literally a couple of weeks ago, this movie popped up somewhere. I can't remember where, but I literally watched it because you were this is the film. So this is the first time I've seen it. The story that it's based on, I've heard a lot about because there was a couple of serial killers. It's like their favorite book. And there's like Robert Hansen and the Zodiac. Yes, it's it's, uh, referred to in the movie. Yeah. It's certainly not unusual that you just saw the film before the podcast. I get that a lot as well. That's a good thing, though. Yeah. I love movies from the 30s. The great thing about classic films is that there's just so many that when somebody's like, have you seen this one? You're like, I'm writing that down. I'm going to watch it. What did you think of the film upon seeing it? I thought it was kind of cool. It was a lot more dynamic than I expected it to be. There's some interesting things where they're running through the jungle and there's a little bit more tension than I expected, which was nice. Because I feel like the older films, sometimes an action film from the 30s is not 
at all how we would recognize an action film today, for example. But I thought it was quite good. You know, I got really excited when the RKO little thing came off the start. I was like, do-do-do-do-do-do. I was like, RKO! <laughs> so excited. It's got like this the front door of this mansion. There's an island. It's set in a jungle, but I would almost say it's kind of got like a gothic mansion situation happening, which I am a fan of, especially in older movies. I love big old buildings in a movie with like a creepy guy that lives there. And I love the faces. I can't remember the actor's name. You know, the Russian who's the... Uh, Leslie Bay plays... Yeah, Captain him. Star. Yes. There's so many moments where the camera lingers on his face and he looms and he's got this menacing, very 1930s acting. Right. That post-silent era where it's still a bit heightened. And he's wonderful. These musical things go off like dun-dun and his face is there and the camera's just lingering and you're like, okay, so you're saying this guy is a bad guy. <laughs> like, I get it. I love that. I can't remember when I first saw it. It probably was perhaps some Saturday afternoon. It was on TV at some point. It may have actually, I may not have seen it until I got to college. I think it must have been much earlier because I read the short story, but I think I read the short story after seeing the movie, Mm -hmm. though it is possible it was the other way around. And though it is a picture very much of its time, I also agree with you, it's actually much more exciting than you might think it is, especially within the context of being shot on a studio set and they're still perfecting the technical aspects of film. Yes, I also found it a lot of fun. And you talk about Leslie Banks, who I think, like Richard Dawson, is in many ways the saving grace of the movie. This was his film debut. He had fought in the First World War, and he had this injury that paralyzed the, would be the right side of his face. But that didn't stop him from acting. And he became one of the major, most popular stage actors of the time. And he became available. But his paralyzed face just adds to the menace. Absolutely. One of his faces sort of sunk a little and it doesn't match the other half. There's just something very, very menacing. And the scar on the side of his face. He is a bit stagey in his acting, which wasn't very unusual for the time. Yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of the saving grace of the film. Any scene he's in, he really steals it, for sure. Yeah, just try to look away. Just just try. You can't. He's hypnotizing you with his eyes. What are some of your favorite scenes of the movie? I like the one, except more of a moment maybe than a scene. Towards the end, there's a scene where he sets his dogs on Joel McRae. So he's wrestling with this dog. Oh no, and Faye Ray's in the background and the dog's tail is wagging i don't know why i found that so amusing i think there's a scene where the couple are being chased through the jungle and it cuts to ferns and palm fronds being moved out of the way as the camera pushes forward and it cuts between the faces of the people being pursued and the intensity of the russians i thought that was really good i wasn't expecting that i think i was expecting something much more static i also thought that was unusual for the yeah. time it's a pov shot of what the two actors faye ray and joe mccray what they were seeing as they were running through the forest. And I do think that's an unusual shot at the time. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. They probably put the camera on a dolly and sent it through the set. But I would think that might have been a rather difficult shot to make. Yeah, well, cameras are so clunky then, weren't they? Right. And the sound issues you would have had. And it's great to see that kind of thing. In the same way, this wonderful dolly shot where Faye Ray is on the stairway. The dolly just zooms down toward Count Zaroff. Oh, yes. That's a good moment. It's quite menacing, isn't it, at that moment? Right. And everyone's, like, frozen. She's like, I'm going to bed. And then there's just this moment where she's looking at him and he's looking at her and the camera, like, pushes in. It's wonderful. You mentioned the, the dog wagging its tail. And one of the slight difficulties is that these are Great Danes. Great Danes aren't really very menacing. They're really very, very friendly dogs. Well, Scooby-Doo is a Great Dane. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tells you a lot. <laughs> 
So in order to make them much more menacing, they would tend to shoot them from below. They did have to work a lot to make them seem much more menacing than they really are in real life. Yeah. Another shot that I did like is I did like the sharks. Oh, yeah, the sharks. I forgot about those. I got so caught up in the middle of the film. <laughs> the actually... scene on the boat is quite interesting. At the start, the movie opens with them on a boat. The manly men are discussing hunting, and it's a pretty good opener. Well, it sets up everything. It sets up, yeah. the it sets up all the characters, differentiates them. The shark scenes were considered very, very upsetting at the time. When it was released years later, they were considered so objectionable that they reversed the negative so it wouldn't seem as oh, okay. violent. Wow, that's interesting. But and the one I saw, which was on the Criterion channel, I think they put it back to the way it was supposed to originally look. But it is pretty graphic for the time with the blood flowing into the water. You know, very, yeah. very Jaws-like. But here's also where the movie has some of its weak points. It was budgeted for $400,000. But RKO was having a lot of financial difficulty. And they were also, at the exact same time that they were producing this movie, they were also doing King Kong on the exact same sets. Yeah, they did look familiar. <laughs> right. Especially the one where they cross a log over a yeah. said, Yep, yeah, that's King Kong. So they had to cut the budget to $200,000. One of the things that went is the shipwreck scene where the ship goes down was supposed to be much bigger, much longer. So technically, though there are a lot of interesting aspects of the film, it did suffer, I think, to some degree because the budget was not what perhaps it should have been. Mm -hmm. Another thing that they cut from the movie, they did shoot it, but it was too upsetting for the audience, is the first time they go down into the basement, it was a lot more graphic. Apparently, there were bodies and heads of sailors and people were walking out. Wow. They cut some of that as well. That is kind of intense, the mm. basement with the past, I was going to say contestants, but that's not quite what I mean. <laughs> a past game of trophies. Past right. trophies. This was also pre-code. Uh, you're familiar with the pre-code. Oh, God, yeah. I yes, love I'm, pre-code. I'm sure all my listeners are, but just in case, why don't you tell them about the pre-code era? The way I usually think of it, probably the simplest thing, is they didn't have ratings because film was so young. They just thought, let's just tell this story or that story, and anyone could go in to see anything. With the code, they started to clamp down on a couple of things. It was partly because there was a sense of debauchery, that Hollywood was a debauched place. Cases like the Fatty Arbuckle case, right. where there was this lavish party and this woman was killed by an actor, except that's not exactly what happened. You know, they clamped down on this idea of, you know, people seeing films and maybe being corrupted or frightened or whatever, so rather than having a rating system now where you go, okay, this is appropriate for this person and maybe not for that person. They just cleaned up everything. Pre-production, you could have, <laughs> it was a bit of the Wild West, you could kind of have what you wanted in your film. And post-code, there were lots of things you couldn't have, like a bad guy couldn't get away with his crime, for example. I think Mae West is a good example. Her pre-code films have a lot of one-liners that you're like, wow, she just said that. So sassy and sexual. Post-code, she had to clean up her act and her jokes just weren't as funny because her jokes are very ribald. She went back to the stage. Finally. Yeah. Code came in in 1934 and this was in 32. And sometimes it's amazing what people got away with then. Here, yeah. I'm not sure people would really see much that they think would be so objectionable but the two main areas were somewhat revealing clothing especially that Fei Wei okay. wears yeah. would have been cleaned up after 1934 and the emphasis on Count Zaroff 
uh, describing how he basically gets real, so turned on by hunting game that afterwards that makes having sex with a woman so much more ecstatic. Yeah, and you really feel that menace coming from him towards Fay Ray in this film. And that would have been toned down a bit after yeah. 1934. But it's interesting about Fay Ray. Because the character that she plays is not in the book. There is no female character in the book. Well, the film without a starlet being menaced. <laughs> well, there are a couple of reasons, yes, why she's in the film. Certainly one is that you have actress under contract. Mm-hmm. you got to pay them if they're working or not. So you got to find films for them to be in. But secondly, as opposed to today, and opposed to starting maybe in the 70s and 80s, a movie was not considered as marketable if it did not have a female lead of some sort in it. Mm-hmm. They were trying to get everybody into it, including women. And that stopped around the 70s or 80s when they said, well, we really aren't that interested in the female audience. There was less and less emphasis on having a female lead in a movie. But what was interesting about it is that she's just not there for window dressing. She is then made integral to the plot. It would be very hard to imagine the story as written without that character being there. I think she's quite fun. I like that she's in this. She's fairly one note in this, maybe. No, I don't mean to criticize her too much because I do like her in this film, but that scream, such a good scream actress. <laughs> she was the scream queen of her time. Yeah, I love that. But now she becomes the additional goal of the central character. And that puts hmm. a whole different psychological aspect to the story. Allows him to be a bit more heroic rather than just saving himself. He's like, no, it's fine. I'll save you too. From yeah. the menacing Russian who wants to rape you after he kills me. Is there a reason why he's Russian? Well, I don't know. He's Russian in the short story. Oh, okay. So they've just kept that. So that's probably the main reason. It gave him a backstory. He fled the revolution. And it's why he has all this money. He was a nobleman in Russia. He managed to get out with all of his money. And so he built this big mansion on this island that he owns. Story. It's Russians. They're bad guys. Apparently. I'm so used to Russians being the 80s bad guys. I feel like in movies, there's periods of times where certain demographics are the bad guy. That's an interesting question. I don't remember it being so. We get to where the Germans, of course, are starting to be the bad guys. Yeah. And there's the yellow peril of the 20s. The basic trope of the movie, the idea of man hunting man, is a very, very popular trope. Now, I can't say this is the first time it was ever done. Even for the short story, I can't say that this was the first person who ever came up with this idea. But the idea of man hunting man and this movie, the title, The Most Dangerous Game, became so influential that if you ever have a movie like this again, you call it a most dangerous game movie. Mm-hmm. It's not just described as it's about a man hunting men or men hunting men. It's described as a most dangerous game movie. It's sort of like Rashomon describes the kind of movie. Not only yeah. is it a movie, it's a kind of movie. The Searchers is not only that movie, it's also a kind of movie. Almost like a subgenre. Right. Yes, it it becomes a genre all on its own. And I'm going to quickly, if I can, just to let people know how influential this movie was. Here's a list of just some of the movies that owe its influence to it. The Naked Praise, Surviving the Game, The Hunger Games, Turkey Shoot, Quintet, Duel, Southern Comfort, The Hitcher, Hard Target, The Hunt, Tenth Victim, Punishment Park, Series 7, The Contenders, A Million Game, A Game of Death. And that's just a very, very small number. 
Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It earned a profit of $70,000, which today is about $1,235,000. So it made about $270,000. So it did very well at the box office. It was shot at night while King Kong was being shot during the day. And it used some of the same actors and some of the same sets. Fay Ray, Robert Armstrong, who plays the alcoholic brother, James Flavin, who I think was the captain of the ship, and Noble Johnson, who is Leslie Banks, Count Saroff's right-hand man, were all in King Kong. Fay Ray was not originally cast. They tried to get another actress when she wasn't available. They said, well, Fay Ray's during King Kong. We'll use her at night. And there was plenty of downtime because a lot of King Kong is special effects and things of that nature. The actor playing Ivan the Cossack, as I mentioned, was Noble Johnson, who was a multi-talented Black American, a childhood friend of Lon Chaney. This is the earliest known instance of a Black actor playing a Caucasian character. He also put money in a production company that produced films for Black audiences on Black subjects. Leslie Banks is probably much better known to movie audiences as the title character in Alfred Hitchcock's the man who knew too much the first version of that film and the great danes in the film were provided by the comedian harold lloyd so with that is there anything else you might want to add about this film or the reading man or both films together I think it's kind of interesting that they come about as a subgenre. One goes in a way of looking at how, as a society, we like violence. And then the other one goes of looking at how the individual sometimes likes violence. In the first one, it's kind of baying crowd that want death and as an entertainment. And in Dangerous Game, it's an individual as a hunter. And I think at the end of both, both leads, okay, maybe I won't really be into this stuff anymore. <laughs> Joel McRae's character is probably not going to go on a big game hunt again. Yes. Schwarzenegger's character is probably not going to... Maybe they'll get to Hawaii this time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great observation. I think that's very true. The writing man is much more a dissection and an accusation of us, the audience, and what we want and what we enjoy. Yes. (laughs) And the most dangerous game is a psychological look into us as individuals. That somehow there's something inside of us that, I guess, enjoys this. Yeah, we're sort of drawn to it. So with that, let's start closing out. I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Yeah, so you mentioned one of the films that I thought of is Hard Target with Van Damme. It's sort of the first time that I saw the kind of most dangerous game story. It's about 1993, I think it came out. Girl's looking for her dad, and so he agrees to help her out, and it turns out her father has become homeless and to make money has agreed to be hunted for sport. Van Damme just blows the whole situation wide open, basically resolves everything in 90 minutes. But it is definitely in that cheesiness that Running Man has, if you like that kind of old school pop culture action. The other one I thought of was Ace in the Hole, which I think is from 1950. Kirk Douglas. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not really the same, but with Running Man looking at how the media sometimes creates a story that isn't there. So in the Ace in the Hole, there's a journalist who eventually allows a man to die in order for him to get prestige and a good story and further his own career. This guy is in a mine and he's stuck and the character could get the guy out, but he makes him stay there and eventually the guy dies. You know, I think people start selling popcorn at some point. And oh like, yeah, they move in the, next, in the uh, merry-go-round. And it's literally a media circus. So, a literal uh, and metaphoric media circus, yes. 
I think that's a very good choice. Yes, that was directed yeah. by Billy Walder, and it stars mm -hmm. Kirk Douglas, and you were off only by one year. It's 1951. Oh, okay. I was close. <laughs> and Hard Target was the American debut of the Chinese director, John Woo. For me, I'm going to do something different. Mm -hmm. uh, for my first recommendation, I'm actually going to recommend an episode of a television series. Okay. And this is from Star Trek, the original series. The episode is called The Squire of Gothos. Mm -hmm. It's the 17th episode of the first season, and William Campbell plays Squire living on the planet of Gothos. He's living in a 19th century type mansion. He traps some of the people from the Enterprise. Uh -huh. on his planet. He is pure Leslie Banks in his over-the-top performance. And then what he does is, yes, he sets them up to hunt them down. But then it has a very wonderful twist ending that is quite memorable. But it's basically a remake of The Most Dangerous Game. Uh, the next one is a very, very cheesy film. <laughs> from 1965 from Italy called The Tenth Victim with Marcello Mastriani. Mm -hmm. It's about a game also that you would watch on television in which you are either assigned, if I can remember this right, to be the killer or the victim. There are a set of complicated rules, but basically what it is, people are hunting down people and whoever survives at the end is the winner. That sounds fun. The other one is one that I covered on an earlier episode of Pop Art called Series 7, The Contenders. It's just a movie that has to be seen to be believed. It's a very, very dark, bitter satire on the reality show in which a location is chosen. Six people are given guns and they're told whoever lives is the winner. It's an underrated film from that period and I highly recommend it. What's it called? Series 7, The Contenders. Okay, that's interesting. It's quite something. So what is next? What should we be looking for? Um, COVID going on. Yes. It's, it's quite quiet. So I'm doing a lot of just creative things. So mm -hmm. I'm writing as I usually do, but you, obviously you won't see any of that. I'm talking about a lot of classic films over on my blog. What's the name of your blog? It's called wildfireemotionpictures.com. I just talk Great. about movies. The film Akira, that is on at the cinema at the moment. So I'm going to go see that tonight in 4k and all that whatever so i'll be talking about that yeah. as for me i'll go through my usual litany i am a screenwriter and screenplay consultant. i have a facebook page called howard kasner screenplay consultation i have a blog called rantings and ravings which covers topics on screenwriting and movies i publish two books of short stories on amazon the starving artist and other stories and the five corporations and one true religion these are sci-fi or and fantasy short stories. I published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader on Amazon. And I am an amateur photographer and you can find that on Instagram. What's your Instagram? It's just under my name. Everything's under my name. I make it very easy to find me. <laughs> <laughs> I if I had a stalker, so there'd yeah. never be any problem finding me. Yeah, you probably wouldn't be much fun for a stalker. Right. <laughs> challenge. I would go, oh, a stalker. Come in and have coffee. Let's talk. Can you set up a Facebook page for Stalking Hour, guys? That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> the previous podcast was with film enthusiast, writer, blogger, Kyra Comerford, where we discussed Hell or High Water and Bonnie and Clyde, two movies about bank robbers. The next episode will be with screenwriter and instructor Dmitry Vorontsov, where we will discuss Back to the Future and Nauchet, two movies where a man returns in time to events that took place in their parents' past. But with that, once more, I want to thank you, Hermione, for being a guest on my show. 
Thank you for having me. This was really fun.